What does it take to make it to the end of life's road with the assurance that you've accomplished something meaningful? The answer is perseverance. Okay, let's close in prayer. Oh. Bruce once shared with me, you, you go as long as you need to to make the point, but uh, I think we need to unpack this a little bit more, don't we? And, and you have to persevere through the message, so uh, we'll, we'll... Perseverance is the ability to keep going in a life whose goal is to glorify God. And this is not a goal for super saints. It's possible for everyone in this room. What do you need for a life of perseverance? You need discernment. Discernment is the fuel that runs the engine of perseverance that takes you down the road of a significant life. Discernment is the fuel that runs the engine of perseverance to take you down the road to a significant life. Now, I don't mean your best life now. I don't mean significance as people have it, but significance as God would have it, as you fulfilling God's plan for your life. See, discernment is the ability to see life and its changing circumstances from God's perspective. It's the ability to tune out the distractions, to maintain your focus so that you can fulfill what God has put you on this planet for. You can have discernment if you love God's Word and imbibe it enough for it to transform your mind so that you adopt God's outlook on life. Discernment will keep you on the right path when everyone else around you is fooled into making bad decisions. Discernment will empower you to make the sacrifices that really count in life. And discernment comes from a perspective gained from God's timetable for history and where your life fits into His plan. And make no mistake, you do matter. If you're alive and you're drawing breath, that's evidence that you have been created in God's image. Don't tell me you don't matter, because you do. Why else would Jesus have come to die for your sins? So if you take the divine viewpoint, you will keep from throwing away the long-term goal of a life of impact in favor of something temporary and false. Now, our text really is... is uh, <clears throat> in the middle of a big problem for Jewish people in Jesus' day. So we've got a problem with the Messiah. We've got a problem with understanding who He is. And really the key to understanding God's plan is understanding Jesus Christ Himself. Because He's the centerpiece of God's timetable. And the time to really listen on this subject in the Gospels is where you hear the expression, Son of Man. Your ears should pop up when you hear Son of Man. Look at verse 22 in our passage. Jesus calls himself Son of Man. You will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. 
Now, for my seminary students in the Greek, it really says, son of man. Okay, you got that? Okay, all right. Good. Uh, And seminary students, uh, this is for the seminary students, really, but you can listen in. Son of man, as an expression, occurs 82 times in the New Testament. And uh, one time in Acts, two times in Revelation, and everywhere else it's in the Gospels. And other than the one in Acts and the two in Revelation, it's always on Jesus' lips, and it's always directed to himself. He always calls himself Son of Man. In fact, you could say this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Now, why would that be the favorite title for Jesus for himself when he's really the Messiah, right? Well, now, of course, Messiah... Uh, I'm getting all the languages in here. So in, in Hebrew, Messiah is really Messiah. Okay, it's just, our, it's just our pronunciation of Mashiach. It just means someone who's been slathered in something or someone who's been anointed. Nobody knows what anointed means anymore, so slathered in something. And this is, it's, it's oil, you see. And the oil represents the pres- presence of God's Spirit. And with the presence of God's Spirit, the authority and presence of God Himself. And that was true of David. He was anointed the king of Israel. And the king of Israel is always called the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. But if Jesus had used this term Messiah for himself, people would have misunderstood his message. And so instead of calling himself Messiah, he preferred Son of Man to clarify his message. See, by the time Jesus had come on the scene, people had begun to expect the Messiah to be a conquering king. You know, someone who's going to throw out the Romans and reestablish to restore Israel to its greatest height, you know, when David was king or maybe when Solomon was king as he expanded the, uh, the territory of Israel. And so they had come to expect this conquering king But the key to understanding the Son of Man here and Jesus' response to this Messiah title as people understood it in his day was Son of Man. But we've got to go six centuries before him to understand what Son of Man means. You remember Daniel, the young man taken into captivity in the the closing years of the 7th century B.C., God made a revelation to Daniel about the timetable for history. And in chapter 7 of his prophecy, you find an interesting vision that he has. And this succession of beasts appears in the vision itself. And these beasts represent the various empires, the Babylonian and the Persian, which he was already experiencing. But, But it also foretold the Greek and the Roman empires. They were beasts. That's how God views the world powers. This is terrible beasts, each one more terrible than the next. And in the vision, suddenly God appears and prepares to judge the world. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
So this Son of Man figure is God's key agent in God's end times program. In his plan for Israel and in his plan for the nations. But unfortunately, the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy went unnoticed in most Jewish thinking. They passed it over. And if you read the material of the Old Testament and then on into the, the period between the Testaments, you don't find really much said about the Son of Man. It's almost like the Jewish folks weren't even thinking about this guy. Even though, you know, they'd been thinking about the, the whole timetable that's elsewhere in, in, uh, in Daniel, the 70 weeks and so on. We don't have time for that this morning. Uh, <clears throat> how long do I have? Uh, uh, anyway. But they'd been, th- you know, people had been thinking about the Messiah, but they had neglected this Son of Man. And this is why when we get to Luke 17, 20, the Pharisees' question has to do with a timetable of when the kingdom of God would appear. Verse 20 says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold... The kingdom of God is in your midst. You know, uh, Jesus' response to the Pharisees is different from the one he gives to his disciples. You see later uh, in the next verse, he says, and he said to his disciples. There's often times when, when uh, Christ will speak in, a, in one way to the crowds and in another way to the people who uh, know him and have a frame of reference for um, understanding what Jesus I wanted to say to them. And it's unfortunate that in verse 21, uh, there's a modern day tendency to turn this into a spiritual cliche. You know, uh, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, That is such a misunderstanding of the Greek text, I can't can't even begin to tell you how... uh, how violent that is to the sense of Jesus' intent. So, uh, just... Let's hang with me here. It really means the kingdom of God is present among you or within your grasp. You can reach out and touch me. Reach out and touch me. Yeah, you've got the kingdom of God right here. Uh, <clears throat> See, now, even the response, the kingdom of God is within you, uh, wouldn't have been something the Pharisees or even Jesus would have been expecting. You know, the kingdom of God is in every human heart. Uh, some platitude like that. No. Uh, Jesus would have responded to something like that, I think, uh, if I can presume to speak for Jesus. Uh, but he probably, would have, he probably would have responded with something from the prophet Jeremiah. You know, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know? Uh, <clears throat> no. Uh, he says, it's, it's not a matter of what you eat. It's, it's a heart problem, he says. It's, it's what comes out of the heart of man that defiles you. He would have said something like that. So the kingdom of God is in every human heart is just wishful thinking, actually. His response means the kingdom of God is present right here, around me. There's no need to look for signs. I'm here. Look at the, the context of the passage as well. 
Right before this question from the Pharisees, Jesus heals ten lepers. You know the story. It's ten lepers. One guy comes back and thanks him, and he's a Samaritan. You know, the Israelites should have understood who he was. But only the Samaritan really figures him out. And says thanks. But the only thing the Pharisees get is this terse, confrontational declaration. The kingdom of God is right here. And they rejected it. You know, God doesn't obligate himself to give further revelation to those who reject him. Uh, he does in grace. He, he, uh, uh, he doesn't respond vindictively when we reject him. Thank God. <laughs> you know, what if you only got one chance? Right? None of us would be here, right? We all heard the gospel seven, eight times, 15, 20, I don't know how many times before we responded. Just imagine if God gave us what we deserved. Oh, man. But there comes a time when God doesn't give any further revelation. Because if he gives more revelation, just, it just bounces off that hard heart. And that was the case with most of the people in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, people who should have known better, the people who were studying the Word of God. The irony is, people studying the Word of God, they, they missed it. But he does disclose himself to his disciples. And this is why when he turns to them in verse 22, he says, <clears throat> He said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So he said to the Pharisees, the kingdom is here. But he said to the disciples, the kingdom is coming. And that had been, of course, his, his signature Message: He and John the Baptist both repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus took the same message that John the Baptist had been preaching and went forward with it in God's revelation and said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Pharisees say, when? He says, I'm right here. But to his disciples, he says, there's a future aspect to this. The kingdom is not yet present in the way it will be in the future. And this is what the Pharisees can't understand and the disciples don't yet understand. Isn't it funny? Even the people who follow Jesus have hardness of heart as well. That's why you and I need to keep taking in the Word so we can develop discernment so that we can see past our hard hearts. You know, it never hurts to review the basics of God's plan for human history. So forgive me if this is... Uh, this is too basic, but it helps. You know there's a first advent of Jesus, and you know that there's a second advent of Jesus. With me so far? Okay, it gets a little more complex. Okay, Jesus came the first advent. We've just celebrated his first advent in the incarnation, but there was his death on the cross for our sins. They buried him. He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and he now sits at the right hand of God. 
The next event in God's plan is not the second coming that we see here in this passage, but something else called the rapture. Of course, I'm aware that the term rapture does not occur in the New Testament, but the verb harpazo does. And that's the same thing as the Latin rapture. So it really, it really is there. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4. You know the passage. Where Paul reveals that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, then the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to be with the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. That's the rapture. Following the rapture, there's a period of seven years that we call the Great Tribulation. We get that term out of Matthew. And following that seven years, Jesus will come back in the second advent. And there's a judgment then. And that judgment is in view in our passage Following that judgment, Jesus will finally set up the kingdom of God the way we've been expecting it from the prophets. That is the future kingdom of God. We call it the millennium because it's a thousand years. The Latin for a thousand is millennium. Well, anyway, uh, it's a thousand year period in which Jesus will actually reign from Jerusalem in a political manifestation, an earthly manifestation of God's kingdom. Finally, there will be someone who can reign properly. That's why there's no, by the way, no political solution to any of the trouble we have because even the best people that we can elect have a hard heart too. (coughs) Following his millennial reign, there will be what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, there's some other events in there, but uh, I'm not going to get technical with you here. But the great white throne judgment is found in the tail end of Revelation. That's the one where people are, are there and they're judged according to their works. Those are The people who are there at the great white throne judgment are actually people who have rejected Jesus Christ. There aren't any believers at that judgment. And they open up the, these books. There's a book of life and there's a book of works. They look for your name in the book of life. You're not there. So they look at the book of works and they say, let's see, have you done enough to match what Jesus Christ did on the cross? Mm -mm." Uh, And this is serious. Now, I've I've been oversimplifying it, but anyone who is there who's already rejected Jesus Christ will spend eternity separated from him. So that's the basic overview of God's plan for history. There's the first advent. There's more before the first advent, of course. But there's the first advent and there's the second advent. We're waiting for the second advent, but we're waiting for the rapture before the second advent. So when Jesus says, you'll long for one of the days of the Son of Man, in verse 20, he's talking about this period in which we're dealing with trouble The days of the Son of Man refers back to Jesus' earthly ministry as well as to the days of the Son of Man when Jesus will come back. You'll long for that, but you won't see it yet. 
And see, if you don't know about the Son of Man and His plan, you'll be susceptible to counterfeit doctrine. This is why the warning of this passage. Have you noticed whenever anybody calls Jesus Messiah, what His response is? Take, for instance, Luke 9, 20 through 22. Uh, and Jesus said to them, to the disciples, the scene is Caesarea Philippi up north. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ of God. Christ is just the Greek translation for Messiah. You are the Messiah of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Why would he say, like, you've got the truth about me. So why does he say, shh, hey, don't tell anyone. It's because of this term Messiah, it would carry too much baggage for him. And they would misunderstand it. But he responds instead by saying, verse 22 of Luke 9, The Son of Man must suffer many things. Verse goes on. Now in our world, in these days, when we read this passage, perhaps even Christians who read this passage, we say, Son of Man, and we go, Oh yeah, of course that means Jesus is human. You know, the doctrine of incarnation, we know about the hypostatic union, you know, uh, the true humanity of Jesus and the undiminished, uh, sorry, the true humanity and undiminished deity of Jesus. It's two natures in one person forever. That's basic. That's actually one of the basics of being Christian. If you don't believe that, you're not Christian. Like one of my colleagues says, uh, my colleague Jeff Bingham, who's a man who is uh, about seven feet tall, I think, at least, he says, call it what you will, but don't call it Christian. He has this nice baritone voice. <laughs> See, if you don't believe that Jesus is God and man, you're not Christian. It's just plain, I, I, you know, I'm not being divisive here, I'm just saying this is what makes you distinctively Christian. Now that's true. Jesus is true humanity. But that's not what he means by son of man. You go back to Daniel 7, you read that with careful reflection and you realize that Jesus means by son of man, I'm the guy from Daniel 7. So the son of man is this co-regent who is more than a man. Jesus is the center of God's end-time plan for the world because the Son of Man will, at His second advent, sit in judgment of the world. But you know, what's interesting is that Jesus, as the Son of Man, is the judge in the future, but He's the substitute now. Now, you may be thinking, well, now, this passage is about the second coming, and we're waiting for the rapture. So, what kind of application does a passage about the second advent have to us who are waiting for the rapture? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Think about the rapture as the first phase of the second coming. Okay, so for us, when the rapture happens, it's as though the second coming is happening. So... Now, I'm not confusing the events, but I'm saying for the, for the sake of application, whatever is said in the New Testament about the second advent, we can apply to us when we talk about when the rapture happens. It's the end of our lives as we know it. Life shifted gears for us. We're instantly changed. 
And Jesus' words then still apply. Beware of predictions about the coming kingdom because they're false. All of them. Now, you and I are probably a little bit more discerning, let's hope. You know, for those people who've set dates, you know, the rapture's going to happen on such and such a date. The end of the world will happen at such and such a date on such and such a time. It's interesting how some of these people figure these, the, these things out. You know, they, they're looking at these Mayan ruins and going, the world must end on this date. I, I think the, the date for this year is uh, December 21st. Uh, because of some Mayan thing. Uh, you know, you and I are a little bit more sophisticated than that, I think. But, I, you know, I think we also need to be careful that we don't start saying things about, well, the rapture must be closer because Israel's been in the land for X number of years and everyone knows after X number of years, wink, wink, the rapture will happen. Uh, you know, there's 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. <laughs> it was the follow-up hit to that one was 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1989. Uh, you see what I mean? Now, now, here's a real quick way to know how close the rapture is. Look at your watch. Okay, you can go, you can look at your watch. Look at your watch. Now, if you, have, if you have one of those analog watches that has a second hand on it, if you see the second hand moving, okay. Now, if you have one of those digital watches, if you see the seconds counting off on that thing, you know the rapture's closer. <laughs> okay, that's how you know the rapture is closer. Okay, Jesus could come, you know, seriously, Jesus could come back before I finish this message. Wouldn't that be great? I'd... I won't have to finish this thing. I won't be nervous anymore. But you know what? This passage is calling for discernment. Don't get taken in by stuff like that. Rather than being concerned about the timetable, you should be more concerned about how you live your life now, persevering under the suffering that you're going through, the persecution that you're going through to glorify God. You know, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to set things right in this world. Every atrocity, every crime, every sin, everything will be set right in this world when Jesus comes back. Yes, He is the conquering King. And He will judge the world with righteous judgment. At last, court will be fair. And the world will at last know a ruler as I said before, who can properly govern. But the present is verse 25. And it shocks us. Verse 25, But he, he, the Son of Man, must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, you can imagine what the disciples are thinking as they hear Jesus, Jesus say to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is here. And they're going, yeah, all right, you ready to set this thing up? Can we beat your right hand? Can we beat your left hand? And, and you know, even they're thinking, yeah, conquering king. But the conquest is for another day. In the meantime, God's will is suffering. Look at verse 25. He must first suffer many things and be rejected. 
this passage occurs in the overall flow of Luke, uh, chapter 9 to chapter 19, actually tail end of chapter 9, 951, about into chapter 19, is in Luke's gospel what's called the journey to Jerusalem section. It starts up at Caesarea Philippi and he makes his way down, or, well, down as far as we're concerned. It's always up when you're going to Jerusalem. And he's making his way to Jerusalem and he's telling the disciples along the way, you know when we get to Jerusalem, I'm, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be beat. I'm going to be uh, uh, turned over to the Gentiles. I'll be crucified. And in three days I'll rise again. And they're going, yeah, 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 yeah. What? See, he's already been telling them this, but they, you know, they still haven't gotten it. I, they, they didn't really get it until after Jesus rose from the dead. I think sometimes we as Christians don't get it either. We act as though it's our job to bring about the kingdom of God. Uh, but we can't bring about the kingdom of God. You can't have the kingdom of God on earth without having the presence of the king. And even though he's present with us, he's in us, He's our Lord. We are not the kingdom. Now, we're kind of an expression of the kingdom, if you will, but we're not the kingdom. Not at least in the millennial sense of uh, what the Pharisees are asking about. Verse 25 then makes clear the suffering Son of Man. For Jesus, the cross of suffering precedes the crown of ruling. And for us, the same thing applies. And this is where the discernment about timing comes in. We must identify with Jesus in his suffering and rejection. We must be ready and willing to suffer the loss of everything we have, up to and including our lives. Verse 33 says, Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So endure and persevere in suffering and rejection because God will vindicate you. The next passage is about the, uh, the unjust judge. You know, as the widow keeps coming back to him, vindicate me. He mentions the Son of Man at the end of that one too. God will vindicate Jesus in the resurrection just like he'll vindicate us in the resurrection, the rapture. So Jesus speaks to these disciples about false announcements. Verse 23 says... They will say to you, look there, look here. Don't go away. Don't run after them. Verse 24 makes it really clear that when the Son of Man comes, everyone will know He's here. It's not like you've got to announce, hey, the Son of Man is here. Everyone's going to see it. Hey, did you hear the news? Yeah, well, I saw that already. Uh, He's going to be known in the whole world, certainly and unmistakably. But when he does come, the judgment that ensues will be like two catastrophic events in Genesis. The flood in Genesis 6 through 8. And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in uh, Genesis 19. And in each of those cases, it's too late for the people who have already rejected God and his revelation to do anything about it. In Noah's day, and in Sodom... It was business as usual. Look at verses 26 through 30. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Wow. Now, I'm going to use 9-11 as my example, not because I think 9-11 was God's judgment on everyone who died and so on, but the only way you can wrap your mind around something like the flood or around the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is this destruction, just massive destruction of people. Just Everyone just caught where they are, destroyed, large-scale loss of life. You know, surely there were people who... and. Please, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that 9-11 was God's judgment on everyone who died. I mean, there are lots of innocent people who were destroyed uh, at the hands of murderous religious fanatics. But surely there were people who went to the World Trade Center that morning with plans for the afternoon, you know, birthday parties and dinners. And Sorry, I'll see you later. Oh, yeah, here. Hi, hon, I'm safely at work. Yeah, I'm on the 32nd floor. They said, said goodbye to loved ones and they expected fully to come home. But you know, that catastrophic event on 9-11 really illustrates how brief life is and how suddenly the end comes. See how you can wrap your mind around this judgment that's universal if you think about some catastrophic event. And when the Son of Man comes, His judgment will divide people who are in the closest quarters and in the most mundane scenarios in life. Verse 30 says, It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on his housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Verse 34 says, I tell you on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken. One will be left. There will be two women grinding grain at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. See, when the Son of Man comes, people aren't going to be expecting it. It's business as usual. Some people are going to be asleep in their beds. Others, perhaps in the ordinary process of food preparation. Poof. There's no time to prepare or to flee. And being in a particular family doesn't save you. Being married to a particular person doesn't save you. Only those by faith in Jesus who are already ready will be rescued from that judgment. Verse 37, And answering they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Strange reply, yes, but the, the point is pretty clear that those who reject the Son of Man, their end is death, destruction, a corpse. Verse 32 says, Remember Lot's wife. Now there's one for your scripture memory. Uh, three words... And you've got a verse from the Bible. How about that? <laughs> Remember Lot's wife. 
As Lot and his family fled before the destruction of Sodom, his wife turned back towards Sodom, longing for the comforts of home. Oh, my crystal! (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) They probably didn't have crystal in. My pottery! Uh, I don't know what she was turned around for, but she was longing for whatever she had left behind. She lingered too long and she was swept up in divine judgment. This means you can't look back. Genesis 19.26 says, But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. There isn't any time to waste today for you and me. You cannot look back. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you're in this same situation. You'll go through life, it'll be business as usual, They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, just sailing along. They were marrying, they were being given in marriage. And suddenly, life is over. Isn't it tragic that so many lives end in such everyday pursuits with no discernible meaning? But life has significance only in Jesus Christ. It's fashionable these days to say, who are you to judge me? Who are you to say that I'm going to hell? Let me tell you something. No one in this room can sit in judgment of anyone else. None of us would even try. Not if we knew what was good for us. But presenting the gospel like this is being kind. It's not being judgmental. Jesus gave us this message. And we'd be liars if we didn't present the truth. It's Jesus who will pass judgment. And he has all the facts. He's going to do it fairly. He knows every circumstance of every life. So there's no chance of him being bribed or duped or convinced that the evidence just doesn't stack up. No. And in every case, the story will be the same. Each person who is judged by Jesus will be presented with the fact that they had had the opportunity to to hear this message and respond. The one to pass judgment is the Son of Man, and He's perfect. Jesus is the judge, but here's the good news. He's also your substitute. On the cross, Jesus did everything it took to have a relationship with God. He took every wrong thought, every wrong motive, every evil action we have ever done or ever will do, and bore it there. Isn't it interesting? How many of your sins were still future when Jesus died on the cross? I don't think any of you were alive back then. So, All of it. Every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit. Every sin of every human being who have ever, has ever lived or who ever will live. Those sins were all poured out on Jesus Christ and judged. We sang that hymn. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. 
Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it's as simple as reaching out and taking a gift. Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Don't harden your heart against the truth. Come to the Father through Jesus. And that's the only way that your life will be meaningful in eternity. Discernment is the fuel that runs the engine of perseverance to move you to a significant life. The fulfillment of God's plan for you and knowing His timetable for history provides perspective to be discerning about your own life.